0: Worship is very simply everything that the creature owes to the creator. So just, just grasp that. What is worship? At the broadest level, it is everything that you owe uniquely and exclusively to God. And two of the biblical words for worship, one Hebrew and one of them Greek, they mean literally to bow down, but you can't always translate it to bow down. Sometimes it just means to worship, but that idea of bowing down is still behind it. So it's that, it's that picture of this outward posture of bowing down ought to be an expression of my inward posture. So not just a posture, therefore, of praise and adoration. When we think of worship... We often think of praising and adoring, but worship is more than that. It's the posture that expresses my unworthiness and a spirit of confession before a holy God. That's a part of worship. A part of worship is confession. Um, A spirit of my dependence on God that, that knows that I need him from all my daily needs. So petition is a part of worship. Petition. And then, of course, submission and obedience and gratefulness and thanksgiving. When I thank God for the ways that He's blessed me, that's a part of worship because it's all expressing my posture as the creature before the Creator. But then we also saw there's a need to distinguish very carefully between internal worship. In external worship, and remember, remember, external worship is not bad worship. It's not hypocritical worship. Internal worship is all of your life. It should be all of your life and all of my life. Because everything I do should be to the glory of God. It should express that posture that recognizes who I am and who God is. Um, Well, external worship is not all of life. External worship is set apart from all the rest of life as holy. So when we speak of external worship, what are we talking about? We're talking about those acts. An act that is intrinsically, in and of itself, an act of worship. In other words, you can't do that without worshiping. You can't do it without worshiping. I could eat without worshiping. I cannot pray without worshiping it might be false worship it might be true worship it might be hypocritical worship but it's called worship in the bible so these are acts that are intrinsically acts of worship because God has ordained them as such he is he has ordained that as an act of worship this external worship we saw can be engaged in at different times in different places so we could we so we think of An hour, the hour of prayer. When was Cornelius praying? Three o'clock. Why was he praying at three o'clock? Who cares that he was praying at three o'clock? Well, because that was the hour of prayer. Uh, When Peter and John were going up to the temple, and this is after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and poured out the Holy Spirit. They're going up to the temple at when? The hour of prayer. They They didn't believe that now, all special times of prayer had been disposed with. Now, certainly, there was no law that said we have to do it exactly at 3, but it's appropriate to have an hour of prayer. 3 is a good time. We're going to go to the temple and pray at 3 o'clock. What about the inner room behind the closed door, or the place of prayer by the riverside, or the posture of prayer? Uh, raising of holy hands or kneeling on the beach we saw, and so external worship can be hap- can happen at your home, family worship it can happen in terms of private worship, where you go into your inner room and close the door and get down on your knees and pray. I think we 're uh, as we talked about before we 're in egalitarian culture where you know, even getting down on our knees and praying is not in vogue, because that seems to imply that that makes my prayers more effective. And maybe, and you know, so I don't, I don't do those things. I'm just an egalitarian. I pray when I'm walking, I pray when I'm eating, I pray when I'm this. And, and so this idea of holy times has largely vanished from our vocabulary and from our practice of Christianity. And I've been convicted at that, so I'm not just, not just preaching to you. Um, now, having said that, there is a special sense in which external worship is connected with these times when God's people are gathered together. Are you beginning to see how we're, we're setting this apart? So we have internal worship... External worship, time set apart for worship, prayer. And then you have external temple worship. And that's when we gather together living stones that form together the temple, the holy priesthood, right? And we meet together in church, Paul says, in church, he uses that language, on a specific day, usually the Lord's day. The egalitarian spirit of the age says, hey, who cares when we meet? Every day is alike. And, and Paul says every day is alike, doesn't he? So we don't, in other words, it's not Sunday that makes this worship holy. It's the worship, it's, it's the fact that we worship every day on this Sunday that, that shows the worship is holy by doing it on this day. It's, it's, it's as though we say, hey, worship is holy. The Lord's Day is a pretty special day. It's the day the Lord rose from the dead. That's when we're going to worship. And so it only highlights an accent. But this is not common. This is holy. This external worship we call temple worship, therefore. We could say then that it's doubly holy. Not only is it external worship, it's external temple worship. Now, I mentioned egalitarianism. In connection with the idea of egalitarianism, I referenced a couple of weeks ago the idea of churches having coffee bars on site so that we can enjoy our coffees um, during worship. Now, we're going to see this morning that this is worship. What's happening at this moment is worship because of the context in which it's happening. Um, so, so I brought that up, and of course, that, that was to make us feel a little better. Of course, we don't have a coffee bar, so we've, we've passed that, that test, right? Um, now, there is a Starbucks down the road and Brood Awakenings, and Alpine, and wherever you came from. So you can always pick it up somewhere else and bring it. So this, this brings up a, a question of, what am I really saying? you know when i i brought that up as an example of the way that we have an egalitarian spirit when it comes to worship and and i think you know let's see is there a rule in the bible that says you cannot drink coffee while worshiping is that what i'm saying
1: now i understand that's a fair question am i saying that there's a rule in the Bible that
0: says you can't drink coffee while worshiping? Let me say no. Number two, if, am I saying that if you do drink coffee, I will judge your heart? Let me say no. You know, for 20 years, I believed you shouldn't be drinking coffee in worship. Just so you know. <laughs> okay? But not for 20 years have I ever judged anyone's heart who's drunk coffee. Now, it's, now I've come out with it. Right? Now the cat's out of the bag. But nothing's changed for 20 years. Now, I want to say that I think one of the obstacles to understanding some of these concepts is a lens that we all have that causes us to see legalism instead of theology. I, I feel like I need about two hours of our time this morning to try to work at, at explaining this clearly. Communication is a difficult task. On both sides, speaking and hearing. So I'm asking, I'll ask you to do the work with me. There is, a, there is a sense in which we see legalism instead of theology. So it's like, oh, that was a beautiful theology. But then then to take that theology and translate it is where we all get hung up. Because as soon as we start trying to translate, we get deadly afraid of legalism. And in some sense, rightly so. So I want to say to you this. I would be exceedingly uncomfortable with the unqualified and legalistic sound of this. You cannot eat or drink. You, I don't, I, you know, we had a sign in the back that so says, the Bible says, be, be, the Bible says that you cannot eat your, bring your bag of chips into church and eat your bag, from your bag of chips. Or you're Danish. Or maybe you didn't have time to eat breakfast. So bring your breakfast. Right? What? So, you know, so now we start to, well, what are you talking about? Now you're going to say it's all right to drink coffee, but not to eat your Danish, but not. And usually, usually we, get, we get very uncomfortable. Like, what is going on here? This is not in the Bible. We shouldn't even be talking about this topic. Now, I would be uncomfortable with saying you cannot eat or drink while worshiping. You just can't. Period. Rule. Of course I'd be uncomfortable with that, because every Sunday,
1: what do we do in worship? what do we all do? We all eat and drink. Right? We're all getting ready to eat and drink in worship. Obviously, that's a
0: very different thing. So last Sunday, I put it like this. The general, this is the wording I used, the general principle to be observed is that eating and drinking and Worship and prayer,
1: allow me to emphasize those words again, and worship and prayer are two different activities with
0: times appropriate to each. Now, I believe I can say that. I will say it authoritatively. I will say it biblically.
1: Now, this principle is rooted in what worship is.
0: I'm asking you to do the work in this. It's rooted in the reality that there is an essential, a fundamental, deeply rooted, big deal distinction, biblical distinction, Between internal worship, all of life, the common, and external worship, the holy. It's rooted in this distinction between the the common and the holy and the rejection of this egalitarian spirit of the age. Now, it's rooted secondarily in biblical precedent. So there's precept, which is God's commands. There's precedent, which is... Example, and then you can take it further, or before that is principle as well. So <clears throat> biblical precedent is rooted in and an expression of biblical theology. So let me just put it this way. The hour of prayer was not also the hour of
1: eating. Now there, there
0: are hours of eating. There is mealtime. There is mealtime, there is prayer time. We know this because it was called the hour of prayer. And also because of the rest of the Bible and historical circumstances. Let me say it this way. Kneeling was not the posture for eating, but for prayer. The lifting of holy hands was not the posture for drinking but for prayer. The inner room with the door shut was not the place for eating, but for praying. When Paul and Silas went out to the river to, hoping and thinking they would find a place of prayer there, it was not the, the restaurant, the place of drinking and eating, but the place of prayer.
1: We have been deeply infected with egalitarianism. This is an
0: exceedingly important concept to grasp. And so as I said on on Sunday, let me, let me, and maybe every little thing I get will get us closer there. I'm not suggesting that when you're eating, you can't pray. That would indeed be legalism. Like as soon as you've started eating, oh, Prayer is off the table. Worship is off the table of any kind. You can't even offer to God a prayer thinking about anything. No, what we're saying is that in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old, there is the assumption of times set apart formally, privately, uh, in secret, as families, and as gathered churches... There is the assumption, Old and New Testament, of times set apart as holy unto this activity of worship and prayer. And so what I am saying is that the formal times we set apart for worship should be
1: set apart. For just
0: that, worship. How much more should this be the case for external temple worship? Now, given all of this background, while I would not make the naked statement, you can't eat or drink while worshiping, and we'll get to this later, that a lot of times we, we fixate on can't, as though that's the main point. But in fact, can't, is, in a sense, not even in my vocabulary. At least it shouldn't be. Not not when it comes to these things. I would not say you can't drink while worshipping, or eat while worshipping, but I would say this. I confess to you, I would say this. A robust
1: biblical theology of worship Will always lead to the conclusion
0: that eating and drinking and worship and prayer are in general two different activities with times appropriate to each now that 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 is a principle um, that That certainly leaves open the fact that if there are medical conditions or if through no fault of your own you just absolutely couldn't stay up, uh, get to sleep, or we're up all night and you really wanted to be in worship but you knew that if you didn't drink your coffee you were going to be sleeping the whole way through. What? I don't know your story, right? I don't know your story. I don't judge your heart. And I, I, I want to say, too, that when I say this, that, that uh, eating and drinking and worship and prayer are two different activities with times appropriate to each, I want to say to you that that brings me great joy. I love knowing that. <laughs> See? That is a different way of looking at things. So often people might hear, understandably, because of our lenses, and the difficulties of communication and the culture of our day and age, they might hear, you're saying, I can't, I can't drink my coffee during worship. No, 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 no. I'm saying, I think it's an amazingly beautiful and wonderful thing that God has given us worship And that he has called us to set aside, to set apart times from the other activities of life that are legitimate, from the satisfying of our fleshly desires, and to devote ourselves to the spiritual pursuit of God in prayer and worship. So let me say this. Do I judge the hearts of those who bring a coffee to enjoy during worship? I enjoy my coffee. I do. I enjoy it while I'm preparing the message. During the week. But I make a choice not to bring my coffee up here with me and drink while I'm preaching. Why do I make that choice? Not because I believe I can't. But because I joyfully affirm the reality that this is a time set apart. So, do I judge the hearts of those who bring a coffee to enjoy and or to keep you awake while the sermon waxes long, right? Or whatever that might be. No, I do not judge your heart. I want you to know that. I I don't ever look. and, And I hope and trust that no one else will ever look at someone else and judge in that way. But you see, like last week when I said we, we shouldn't, I, 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 we would choose as a matter of principle, not just as a matter of preference, but as a matter of principle, we would choose not to have ever the title Pastor of Worship Arts in this church. Now, if I say that, some will accuse me of judging the hearts of all churches who have that title. The problem is, if we go that route, then we cannot, have, we cannot make decisions of any kind. We cannot choose at this church not to have a pastor of worship arts, because as soon as that comes up for discussion, we have to say, oh sure, we can have a pastor of worship arts title. Unless it's just, well, I kind of prefer, I don't like the sound of that one. Well, Everyone's alright with that, but if I say I don't want that title because of a matter of biblical principle, now it's legalism and judgmental. And this is where we need to parse this out carefully. So while I will never ever judge the hearts of anyone who brings coffee to enjoy, and I'm just picking on coffee, right? I, I will say that I, I would, I would, I, I, I don't want to use the word judge, but I would question your theology.
1: No, I will not. I will not question your heart. Please know that. But I would question
0: your theology, and you're free to question my theology, right? And in, as we as we question one another's theology, and we speak truth to one another in love, we grow together. And to the end of my days as being a pastor here, I assume that we'll have people always drinking coffee during the service. Okay. We're not going to post a rule. What I'm asking us to think through is the theology of the matter. And I would suggest to you, as I suggested last week, that that one of the reasons one of the reasons that we, we are so, I would say, hypersensitive to legalism today is that maybe deep down we so
1: cherish our freedoms.
0: But not necessarily the freedoms that are biblical. We're going to see this morning that we are most free when we are most bound by the Word of God. And not simply bound by the Word as, as a Word with a bunch of rules in it, but bound by the Word as a theology of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that theology of the Gospel of Jesus Christ ought to, ought to impact and permeate its and saturate its way into every part of your life.
1: And every part of my life.
0: So, maybe this morning, as we move on now, we'll be prepared for this next part, even more so prepared. And I invite you to talk with me more about this. Uh, Feedback is good, communication is important, but most of all, most of all, I want us to see uh, the beauty of the beauty of holy times. And how do we in our practice joyfully affirm the holiness of holy times, and in particular of worship and of prayer. Now what's this? What What are we doing now? I said this is worship. How is, this, how is this worship? That's what we come to this morning in a minute. But let's finish reviewing. I'm just going to run through this. Last week we looked at primeval worship. <clears throat> the earliest worship we saw described in terms of building an altar and bringing an offering. And then in connection with those offerings on the altar, uh, calling upon the name of the Lord. So we looked especially at that expression, calling upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to skip ahead for the PowerPoint people. Try to maybe follow me. I'll tell you when I get to where we're, there's a slide. The Baptist Confession calls this natural worship. Because every unbeliever in the world knows he should be worshiping God. That's been hardwired into him. But after the fall, no one worships God naturally. So now what does God have to do? He has to reveal his worship to us. And now we're also sinners, so that when we do worship, we come as sinful people offering worship. How is God going to accept that worship? So God really has to tell us what's going on now. So worship is that place in which we are more dependent upon God than anywhere else as fallen, sinful human beings. The Confession calls that religious worship. Natural worship is the worship hardwired into us. We know we owe it to God. Religious worship is, is what only God can reveal to us. He, he must make it known to us by special revelation, and it can only be produced in us by a special working of the Spirit. So the altar, it had to be a certain way. Cain and Abel didn't say, let's make an altar. No, God said, I'm going to tell you about an altar. Cain and Abel didn't say, let's bring these things to the Lord. I think he'll be really happy to get this. No, God said, bring me this, and I will condescend to be pleased with it. God revealed his worship. And so the foundational principle to be observed is that in no place are we more dependent upon God than we are in worship. External worship is not something we invent and assume God will be pleased with, because it's worship. No, it's worship if God says it is. External worship is not an arena for me to be creative and inventive. External worship, particularly external temple worship, is uniquely and exclusively the domain of God and must always be engaged in according to his will as he revealed that worship to us. So, here's a bunch of words for you. Internal worship, external worship, private external worship, external temple worship, calling upon the name of the Lord, natural worship versus religious worship. Those are all things that need to inform your theology of worship. This morning we moved from primeval worship to patriarchal worship. I know you're saying we haven't even started our handout, but it's, it's much shorter. If you see on the back page, it's hardly anything there, and I didn't play with the margins at all, so it's a, lot, it's a lot shorter. You have bigger margins all the way around. We should be able to see from our survey of primeval worship that worship is always the response of man, the creature, to God's initiative in self-revelation. But we're going to see this especially in patriarchal worship. Now, this is, this is going to be beautiful. Okay? So, to call upon the name of the Lord is a formal expression for worship. right? And if that's so, then we need to see, first of all, that the name in your handout that is called upon, which is Yahweh in the Old Testament, is itself revelatory. Okay, in other words, what is worship? It is to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that tells me something. God's name, we know, isn't just a word made up of letters. God's name is who he is as he's making himself known to me. See, God didn't need his name to know who he was, right? Only when he made us did, did he then, here's my name, and his name is then is making himself known to his creatures. This means that God's name can be always revealed more and more fully. We saw last week that the children of Seth called upon the name of Yahweh. Now that's back at the very beginning. Did they know God's name? Did Adam know that God's name was Yahweh? Yes, he did. It says so. In Genesis, So did Seth's children. They called on the name of Yahweh, it says. We're going to see this morning, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all called on the name of Yahweh. And yet, we come to the days of Moses, and this is what we read. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. But we know they called on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And they also spoke of Yahweh to others around them. Say therefore, God says to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God's name here is connected with the redemption of Israel from slavery and bondage. God's name is taking on a whole new meaning. Redemption. I am. I am the God who redeems. And I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So when God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was I am. He was Yahweh. But I am the God who makes covenant promises. Now when it comes to Israel, I am Yahweh. I am the God who redeems. Not that he didn't redeem before, but it's being unveiled now. So God's covenant name is revealed progressively, like like you know God's name and then you really know God's name and then you really, really, really know the name of God, right? As he works out his redemptive plan in history. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the name of God more fully than Seth or Enoch or Noah. But they couldn't yet know the name of God as the Israelites would know that name when God in your handout redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt, and brothers and sisters, even the Israelites could not know God's covenant name as you know that name today. As we know that name in Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And Joshua simply means Yahweh saves And so we know the name of God today, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never did, as Moses never did, as none of the prophets ever did. We know his name. And it is upon that name that we call. Do you see how the name will impact the nature of the calling upon? Right? When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called on the name of Yahweh, the point was never the name itself, as though that was a magical form invested with magical properties. They were calling upon a name that was being more and more fully revealed to them in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. They're calling upon a name that they're coming to know more and more fully in God's covenant promises and faithfulness. In your handout, When they called upon the name of Yahweh, they were calling upon God as he was revealing himself to them. So when I say that phrase, to call upon the name of Yahweh, now there's something there. They're calling upon God as he reveals and makes himself known to them. That's there in the phrase, in the expression, in now. Now. It's all going to explode for us from off the pages of Scripture. In the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob narratives, building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord is always, in your handout, a response to the Lord's appearance. It is always a response to his revelatory word of promise. Now, what will that mean for our practice of worship? I'm trying to build a theology, but it'll mean something for our practice. Genesis chapter 12. Now, watch the pattern. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So, Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then Abram proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And there, and the connection in the text is still with that appearance of the Lord and word of promise. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of Yahweh. Abram went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So he's returning back to where he was between Bethel and Ai. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The the text carefully ties it all to the Lord's revelation and word of promise. Three times in these verses we see him worshipping. And all three times it's carefully connected with that. Now, what's the point? The point is not that Abram could never worship unless he had a fresh revelation from God. He said, I'm waiting for God to appear before I worship him again. No, the point is this. Abram was never the initiator in worship. Never. True worship is not possible as something I just decide to do in and of myself. True worship is only possible where the God who is worshipped has initiated and revealed himself to us. And this, in a very wonderful way, puts us in our place. When Abram built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord, what was he always doing? He was always calling to mind and responding to God's prior self-revelation and word of promise. So later in Genesis 13, we see again this emphasis on the responsive nature of all true worship. Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, uh, as the Lord had said, arise, walk through the land. And he came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there, and the text is very explicit with that word there. It's emphasizing always this spot. There in this land which God had just promised to give him, he built an altar to Yahweh. In Genesis chapter 21, remember the story maybe, Abimelech, the Philistine king, and Phicol, his commander. They come to Abraham and they said, the Lord is with you. We can see God is with you in all that you do. And because we see that God is with you and blessing you, we want you to enter into a covenant with us and swear that you're going to deal kindly with us insofar as we deal kindly with you. And so... Abraham sees this, he's like, wow, here's this Philistine king and his commander of his army is coming to me and asking me to make a covenant with them and promising that they will deal well with me. And he sees in that a reminder of God's faithfulness to his promise. In Genesis 12, God promised that he would bless Abraham and make his name great. And here's this Philistine king coming to him and wanting to make a covenant with him. In Genesis 17, God promised that he would establish his covenant with Abraham and his descendants throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant. So having been freshly reminded by Abimelech and Phicol of God's promises and his faithfulness to those promises, we're not surprised when we read in chapter 21 at the conclusion of the story. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there, and there he called on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. Now, it was in Genesis 17 that God said, I will make an everlasting covenant. Why does God, why does Abraham call on the everlasting God? Because he's just been reminded of the everlasting covenant that God has made with him. And so he responds to that in worship. Years later, the Lord appeared to Isaac in the same place that Abraham called in the name of the Lord. These places all came to be important because they were the places that God spoke. Isaac went up to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said... I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. So Isaac built an altar there. Where? Where God appeared and gave him his
1: word. And called upon the name
0: of Yahweh. When Jacob fled from his brother Esau... The Lord, we know, appeared to him in a dream, standing above a stairway with his top reaching to heaven. And that was the time when the Lord said, Okay, Jacob, all the promises I gave to Abraham, and then to Isaac, your father, now I'm going to transfer them all to you. The, The promises will pass down through you. And Jacob responds to this, not by worshiping, not yet, because he's not sure that the God of his fathers is really his God yet. Instead, he vows that if God will be with him and keep him on his journey, as he promised he would, and bring him back to his father's house in safety, then Yahweh would be his God. And he also named the place Bethel, house of God. Okay, fast forward, Genesis 33. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city, uh, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor Shechem's father for one hundred pieces of money. And having come safely back, he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Yisrael, the God the God of Israel. In other words, I promised back then when God appeared to me that if he kept me, he would be my God. He has kept me. Now he is my God. And now as a sign of that, I build this altar in response to his word of promise back at Bethel and this promise that he has kept. <clears throat> so Jacob's altar building at Shechem is his response to the revelatory word of promise. And they say, maybe, well, I get the point. That's good. But theology isn't just a point. It's a theology that needs to take root. So I'm asking you, do this as though you were doing the study. And every time you get to know, that you're like, oh my goodness, I see it again. Wow! Every single time there's an altar built, it's in response to a revelation of God and of his word. Genesis 35, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God. And this is God talking to Jacob. He says, make an altar there to God who appeared to you. In other words, this altar is your response to my initiative. When you fled from your brother Esau, so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, God of Bethel, because, why? Because there, God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Finally, we come to Genesis 46. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. You say, well, I don't see any, uh, um, how do we know that this is a response to God's word? Well, because it says he did it at Beersheba. And because it says he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Where did Isaac build an altar? And offer sacrifices. You could take a guess. It was in Beersheba. That's why it refers here to the God of his father Isaac. That's why he did it at Beersheba. At Beersheba, Jacob in your handout was responding. Even as his father Isaac had. To God's word of promise. Now, we have this drilled into our minds but now the problem is we need it we need it to uh, percolate the point in this is to see how inseparably external worship is tied together with god's revelatory word man is
1: never the initiator In worship,
0: external worship is always man's response to God's initiative, as it were, to God's sovereign advances. Sometimes there's a there's something in vogue today that says that worship is revelation. So when we come to worship, God is being revealed in our worship. So it's as though, so people, this is the mystical approach to the Christian life, the, the false mystical approach. There is a, a, a good sense of the word mystical, if we could recapture that. But there's a dangerous sense, because in this mystical approach, it says that when I pray, that is a form of revelation, That when I worship, God is being revealed to me in and through my worship, in and through my prayers. That is unbiblical mysticism. Prayer and worship is not revelation. Prayer and worship is response to revelation. This is something that the church does not understand today. And so we're being led down dangerous
1: paths.
0: God himself prescribed this pattern for worship in the altar building instructions that he gave to Israel. So listen to the instructions God gave to Israel. You shall make an altar of earth for me or of unshaped stones and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered,
1: called upon,
0: worshipped, and there I will come and bless you. The New Living Translation, Uh, The New Living paraphrase or a commentary, I will call it, Uh, but it really gives a good sense of the words like this. He said, build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered. So, you know, the idea wasn't, oh, whatever high hill I like, I'll go build an altar. No, God says your altar building, your worship must always be connected with my revelation of myself to you. And by the way, don't confuse your worship
1: with my revelation. Don't confuse your times of prayer with me making myself known to you. The altar building of Abraham,
0: Isaac, and Jacob, in every place where God had caused his name to be remembered, was their faithfulness in following the pattern God prescribed for his worship. So we can we can say that Abraham did not call on the name of the Lord unless it was in response to God making his name known. Isaac didn't build an altar unless it was in response to God's word of promise. Jacob didn't offer gifts to God on the altar unless it was in response to God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. And there's a sense in which that's always there. We always see as covenant-keeping faithfulness. We can always call it to mind. Now, in connection with these passages, I'm not going to read these, these well, maybe... There are three other examples, and, and I think I'll just do it. I think I have the time to do it. So Exodus 17. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book. We're skipping ahead out of, out of the patriarchal period, but this is still altars that you could build and not the, the central altar at the tabernacle. That'll be Old Covenant worship next week. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua. Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God has spoken. Moses built an altar and named it the Lord Yahweh is my banner. And he said in connection with this altar and the assumption Generally, as the offerings offered on the altar, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The altar is the response to the word of God. Exodus 24. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord. And all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men and the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. You see the connection with the words of the Lord over and over. Finally, Judges 6. And this is, I believe, every last example in the Old Testament of building these kind of altars. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace.
1: Is it percolating?
0: The act of worship is wholly dependent on God's word of promise. And so we must always see this time here What what we're here doing now. Not as us taking the initiative in worship. We didn't just all, hey, this is a good idea. We think we should. And being the good spiritual Christians we are, we're going to initiate worship this morning. No, we have not once ever in all our lives ever initiated worship. Not in the deepest, most fundamental sense of it. But rather, we must see this time as us obediently and joyfully responding to God's revelatory word. Worship, then, is always responsive. And I cannot emphasize enough that worship today has ceased to be, in large measure,
1: responsive. In fact, we
0: have even come to view worship as itself revelatory. So that in my worship,
1: God is being revealed.
0: This is, the, this is I would suggest, the ultimate in arrogance. Uh, uh, the ultimate in a, in a hidden arrogance. We all have the ultimate arrogance within us, don't we? It's, all, it's always there, hidden, and sometimes it's revealed. And that's a good thing, because then we can do something
1: about it. God speaks, and what is
0: worship? Worship is our answer, as it were, to the word God has spoken. And so, this biblical pattern for worship has been called especially in Reformed circles, the dialogical principle of worship. Now, I hope now you can see that word dialogical as a beautiful word. Because it, of course, comes from the word dialogue. In other words, true worship can only ever happen in the context of a dialogue that God initiates. God speaks, we respond. God makes his name known to us, and then we respond by calling on that name that he has made known to us. And so this is another fundamental biblical truth that needs to percolate and permeate into all of our thinking and undergird our whole theology of worship. What then will this biblical theology of worship mean for our practice of worship? And so in a sense, uh, much of the church today, and <clears throat> at some level we, we, we know we include ourselves in this, we're all good with theology of worship, but then having a theology that impacts practice is an area where I would suggest we're all not necessarily so good. And there's reasons for that. We talked about those at the beginning this morning. But let's, let's say some things uh, practically first of all. This theology of worship means that worship should be centered in your handout. Around that inscripturated word in which God has revealed himself to us through his Son. Where has God revealed himself, brothers and sisters?
1: Here. And so we could almost say that here we worship. Where did the patriarchs worship?
0: Where the word of God was as they brought to mind those appearances of God in that place. And so worship, particularly external temple worship, must be centered around the inscripturated word in which God, in which, it's not just a book, a dead book with letters on a page, in which the living word, Jesus Christ, has been revealed to us. It means, therefore, that all true worship will be word centric. Word-centered. And even word-dependent. There's a sense in which we feel helpless to worship apart from the scriptures. Not that you can't worship without a Bible in front of you or reading a particular verse, but we are help we know we are helpless to worship apart from the revelation that has come to us in Scripture. This is why a significant portion of our external temple worship is taken up with the reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture. This is why this is a part of worship. In other words, look at it like this. How many of us think when we come to church that, well, we do a bunch of different things. Well, we sing. And that's, that's that's one ingredient of something we do. And there's something entirely different we do. We listen to a sermon. Now we can put those things together and see that those things are part of one thing, a dialogue that happens in all true worship. Preaching and singing are both integral parts of worship. This is why we seek to have our prayers, our prayers, whether we're we're speaking our prayers or singing our prayers, they should be saturated with the truths of Scripture, a response to the Word. When we pray, we're calling upon a name that is only made known to us here. And you don't come to know that name more by virtue of Of the prayer. The prayer itself is not revelatory. This is revelatory. Are there then practical ways we could order our service of worship so as to reflect this responsive pattern of worship? So, one thing we can do, and that we do, is we order our service so that we start. Not with a song to work to work us up to get us in the mood. Uh, you know, I'm not saying anything about anyone else who starts their service with a song, but I'm saying that's something I want to avoid. We want to avoid, so we start our service now. Is it a, one day we'll start our service with a song, just so you, just to show you, right? That's fine. But but this theology of worship, we have a joyful excitement about affirming it by beginning our worship with scripture reading. Because who's the initiator in worship? Is it you or God? God is the initiator and we respond. Now maybe you can see a little bit more. We'll talk about the congregational amen more as we move on. But Paul assumed that the church had said the amen at the end of the prayers. So this is why I've more had us saying amen at the end. It affirms more the dialogical nature of worship. Some churches order the entire service to carefully reflect this dialogical principle. Now, when you read this, are you going to see legalism? Or will you see, oh, there's a beautiful example of theology. So here's a church that says this. After the call to worship, we respond with words of invocation, calling on the Lord's name. The Lord has called us to worship. We respond by calling on him, asking him to be present in our worship service. Then in response to this invocation, we hear God's greeting how do we hear it? Through the reading of Scripture. His response that he is present among us in blessing, in gospel promise. Okay? So that's gospel. The conversation continues as God proclaims his law and we respond in confession. As God proclaims his everlasting forgiveness of sins in Christ... And we respond in praise and with prayer. The conversation then climaxes in the sermon where God speaks to us through his word and through the sermon. It then ends in the benediction when God speaks to us the final words of peace and blessing. And I would add on there, then the congregation responds with saying, amen, so may it be. You see the beautiful dialogue that happened. And who initiates? God, not us. We are always the responders at every moment. I would also suggest that they missed the actual climax, and that's the Lord's Supper, but we'll come to that next week. There is no rule that says every service of worship must be ordered like that. And I don't... And, uh, that's not
1: in the works here. So. But I almost
0: hope you weren't worried about that. Because what we will say is that, well, every order of service doesn't have to look like that. That would be legalism. Yet, can we not agree that that order of worship, and do we not all have orders of worship, Some would say that our order is too liturgical. We have two set of an order. We have three songs. We have one anothering. We have our scripture reading at the beginning. We have this, and we have songs. It's all just, right? And some people say, hey, you're quenching the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. Out with order. In with the Spirit. Which, that's to misunderstand the Spirit. But, But can we not see in this order of worship that we read about an order that is very much reflective of a robustly biblical theology
1: of worship? How
0: much of the church's modern-day practice Subtly, or not so subtly, communicates the idea that in worship,
1: we are the ones initiating. How might
0: this be revealed in a minimizing of revelation? In a lack of biblically substantive songs. Songs that are not, are not biblically substantive. How might this be revealed in a lack of biblically substantive preaching? How might this be revealed in a lack of the simple reading of scripture? How might this be revealed in the subtle ways
1: that we seek to set moods?
0: And create an atmosphere and artificially stir up feelings and emotions. All of this flows from the feeling that we are the initiators in worship. But this is ultimately vanity and bondage. True freedom. Where is freedom in worship found? It's only found when our practice of worship is deeply and thoroughly rooted in a biblical theology of worship. True freedom is found only when our worship carefully affirms. And see, what a lot of times what we say is, well, as long as my worship doesn't explicitly contradict this theology of worship then we're fine. But that's not the attitude we want, is it? We want the joyful attitude that says, okay, I'm not just interested in not contradicting the theology of worship. I'm interested, I'm interested in getting this theology of worship and then carefully affirming it with joy. Not, not judging anyone who doesn't do it the way that, that we do it, but, but, but loving that. And, and brothers and sisters, this... The, this whole sermon series goes beyond worship. It goes to your whole life. It goes to every part of your life. So, so much of our lives can, can be this sense of, okay, well, I've got a biblical theology of this, if we even have a biblical theology of that. But then our approach is to say, well, I don't want anything to uh, flagrantly uh, contradict that biblical theology. That's not a Christian approach to the Christian life. The, the Christian life approaches biblical theology and says, I want to carefully affirm that and I want to joyfully do it. What are the ways that I can do that?
1: That is true freedom. That is true freedom in the Christian life.
0: It is God who in your handout makes known to us his name, we who obediently and joyfully respond by calling upon that name. So, this is my prayer for us. In our practice of worship, here at Living Word, may we always be seeking to faithfully reflect this biblical theology of worship, may that just be something that excites us. But second of all, may the way that we approach this time,
1: each week, faithfully reflect this
0: biblical theology of worship. Because every week... We all leave our homes. We all get ready. We all make the trip and journey and gather here. And every single one of us are approaching this time with a mindset, a mentality, and a framework. Is that mindset, mentality, and framework a biblical theology of worship? Dear Heavenly Father, Oh, we, we thank you for your worship. We thank you that you have revealed it to us. That you have called us to be your worshipers. That you have enabled us by your spirit to be your worshipers. What privilege, what glory, what wonder. We thank you, Lord, for the dialogical, responsive nature of all true worship and we confess lord as we have heard your word we confess to the ways that we have approached worship as though we were the initiators and not the responders lord we pray that you would that you would enable us to approach these times according to This theology, that you would enable us to come and respond freely and joyfully to your gospel word of promise that we hear in the preaching, that we hear in the scripture readings, and that we see even portrayed and conveyed to us in this bread and this
1: cup. Lord, I pray that you would,
0: you would always, most of all, Lord, we desire to, to live out a theology of worship in our practice. But we know that most important in back of it all, not, not, not rendering the rest of it unimportant, but above all, you have called us to worship you in spirit and in truth.
1: So Lord, enable us, we pray, to have the pure hearts that you are pleased with.
0: Washed in Christ's blood. Convicted and enabled by the Spirit. So that what we offer to you each week here in this place would be an acceptable offering in your sight. And Lord, I also pray that you would guard your church and guard this church from ever the idea that our worship is itself revelatory. May we clearly always distinguish between your word, which is revelatory, and our worship, which is always our response to your word. Teach us these things not only here, but at our homes, in our secret rooms, on our knees before you,
1: with our families, And we pray these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.